Welcome to I Love Edmonton Real Estate. My name is Jason Scott, and today I have as a guest David Moriarty with Century 21 Reward Realty. Welcome to the show, David. Hey, thanks for having me. So, David, how long have you been a realtor for here in Edmonton? Uh, six going on seven years. Seven years. And how did you get into this as a career? Because I'm willing to bet you didn't grow up saying, hey, I want to be a real estate agent. Well, you know, to be honest, I grew up saying I want to be a real estate agent. Really? You're one of the few. No, no. <laughs> no, okay. Just kidding. I, I was in the military, and uh, when I released from the military in 2007, I had envisioned moving back to Vancouver, and then I got the sticker shock of what uh, real estate was in, in Vancouver. So I ended up sticking around uh, Edmonton and somehow stumbled into real estate. How long were you in the military for? Uh, seven years. And what did you do there? Um, I was in the infantry. I served in Afghanistan, um, the BC forest fires, and you know, mostly just trained here in, in good old Edmonton. Okay, so you were stationed up at the garrison then? Yeah. And so you're originally from Vancouver? Yes. Okay, and so you get out of the military, you're looking at something to do. Why was it that real estate appealed to you? You know what, I had a um, property of my own here, and I saw the potential to make money in the real estate industry. Okay. So was it direct from military to uh, real estate, or was there... Um, I had a, went from uh, military over to corrections, Okay. and then I did my real estate courses while I was doing corrections. Oh, okay. So like you, you mean a correctional officer in the prison system kind of thing? Yeah. How long did you do that for? About two years. Okay. And so... How far into the prison guard career were you when you decided you wanted to switch over to real estate? Uh, well, I was actually on WCB. Oh, were you? Okay. <laughs> with uh, with a broken hand and figured I may as well be doing something while I was sitting at home. Gotcha. So I picked up the books and started doing the courses. Gotcha. And the rest is history, as they say. That's right. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, any uh, awards or recognition that you've received from being in real estate here in Edmonton? Yeah, I've uh, received Centurion Award the last couple of years for production. Before that, the Master's Diamond Award and Master's Ruby from Century 21. Right, okay. Now, you're a pretty heavy producer. You're doing about, what, 50 or 60 deals a year? Yeah, between 50 to 70 deals a year. Okay, and you're a one-man show in the sense that you don't have a team of agents underneath you. That's right. So good for you for <laughs> a, being able to close that many transactions. I mean, that's a ton of work. How do you go about getting your business? Just word of mouth, sphere of influence, and that's really about it. I, I don't like to advertise because then I'm dealing with people I don't know and don't trust and vice versa. I, I don't want to deal with people that I, I feel don't trust me either. Okay. So uh, I'm assuming a lot of your clients are guys that you worked with in the military and at uh, the prison? Yeah, um, from the, the military, the prison than developers I've met along the way. Okay, cool. Do you work more on the uh, buying side or on the selling side? Fairly fairly even. I'd say maybe a little bit more buy side just because I'm helping a lot of developers that are you know, buying infill development projects. But then again, when it comes time to sell those, then I'm back on the, the sales side. Right, okay. What percentage do you think of your business is uh, with developers? Uh, I'd say about you know, 20% of okay. the deals that I do are with developers. Okay. And when you're working with the developers, what specifically are they looking for? How do they know it's a good deal or not? Uh, land usage, you know, getting the most value out of the land tends to be a big thing. So whether it's subdividing a lot or doing a multifamily project on, on a lot, as opposed to, you know, buying one, one lot and building one home on it. A lot of times there isn't much, much margin in that. So it's really, the biggest thing is land usage. 
Right. Okay. So, so as an example, if someone owns an older home in a mature neighborhood, they might have RF3 zoning here in, in Edmonton, which would allow them to do things like a duplex or I guess skinny homes. Is that correct? Yeah. Depending on the, the lot size. Okay. So if the, the lot's big enough and has RF3 zoning, you could do a side-by-side duplex. Some of the, the neighborhoods where if the lot wasn't technically big enough for a side-by-side duplex and still has RF3 zoning, you may be able to do a front-back duplex. Oh, okay. What's so, a front-back duplex? So essentially, you just take that duplex and turn it sideways, and you have one in front of the other, slightly offset, so both have a front door. Okay. But most people don't realize that you, know, you can build a front-back duplex in the city. Okay, so the f- both front doors face the street? Both front doors face the street. And they both have a back door facing towards the alley. But we'll do a, a garage in the rear, you know, with a, a party wall down the middle. Okay. So it ends up being technically a, a two-unit condo. Okay, so it's considered a bare land condo then? Uh, not necessarily a bare land condo. It'd be conventional condo. Okay. That way you don't have to pay services for, for the two. Right. If you had done it as a bare land condo. Right, okay. Or you could just have it as a duplex and two sets of services, but obviously that impacts your... Yeah, but then you're dealing with you know, more or less having to turn it into a bare land condo anyways okay. because of the services and utility right-of-ways from, from one to the other. Okay. So when you're looking at the offset between the two front doors, I mean, how far, how much more deep is the second unit so just picture two boxes yeah. one in front of the other and you know slightly offset it say five feet to the side for for the one unit yeah and then that portion of the back unit that's facing the street is where their front door would go okay so if they're 20 by 20 you would have a 20 foot offset gotcha interesting i, I actually haven't physically seen one in Edmonton or at least I haven't recognized seeing yeah I was gonna say you've probably seen them and just not realized because yeah they they look like just a, a big house from the the street and that's kind of the the way that the city likes to have them okay they don't want it to look like there's you know houses in the back of a yard interesting okay cool so how did you get into working with developers a lot um just met them along the way and you know haven't really looked back Okay. Are you personally doing development work or, or just the clients? Yeah, I'm doing some myself as well. I'm not uh, kind of the natural progression when you're, you're helping other people do it and making them money by doing it. And right. The opportunity presents itself for you to do it yourself. Right. Can you give me an example of one of the projects you have personally been involved with? Uh, well, we just built a uh, threeplex just just north of downtown. And you know we did a essentially 1,200 square foot townhouses. So we did three side by side on a on an older lot where we told, tore down a 800 square foot bungalow, mm-hmm. and so we we got that sold off there a couple months ago, and now it's on to the next project. Right. Okay. So just for anyone who's listening who might be interested in getting into development, what are some of the costs, or how do you decide, I guess, whether a project's going to work or not? Well, you got to run the numbers and make sure that there's margin money to be made. Okay. Otherwise, you're essentially doing charity work, and, <laughs> right. you know, donating your money to the, the good people of the city. Right. Okay. So if you're looking, like if we break it out into, you know, the lot is this much, the construction cost is this much, how much do you think someone should be paying for a lot right now? It depends on the, the area, the lot size, um, what you can 
fit onto the lot. Okay. So there's a lot of different factors that, that come into it. Okay. So if we had, say, uh, an older neighborhood 50 by 150 lot, I'm guessing the cost for the lot would be somewhere between two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars $300,000? Yeah, they, in, uh, depending on the neighborhood. Like I said, you know, you could be in Westmount and demand one price, or yeah. you could be in Eastwood and you know, you're you're in two different ballparks. Right, okay. So, and then what's cost for construction running these days? Depending on the, the quality of finishes, but you could be starting anywhere around $125 a square foot, anywhere up to $200 for, for higher-end finishing. Right, okay. And so for builders, what sort of margins do they typically look at? Like, you know, they're expecting, what, a 10 to 15% return on investment? or Yeah, it really depends on the, the scale of the project, too. You know, sometimes you could have a, a great percentage return mm-hmm. on a small project and it's still not worthwhile. Right. Where you could do a, a bigger project where technically you're not making as good of a return, but you're doing one project and... And the final dollar amount's better. And, exactly. Yeah. Interesting. So, you know, there's the value of your time as well yeah. to factor in. Okay. Like, do you do uh, many joint ventures with the developers? Or, or business partners where, you know, one person is bringing in expertise, say construction expertise, and another person is bringing in uh, either the financing ability or the, the money side of the equation. Yeah, yeah, almost definitely. Because everybody brings something different to the table, right? Okay. You know, sometimes an experienced developer is worth their weight in gold more so than, than the money you're making from the project anyways. Right. And how, how so? Well, knowing the uh, the right contacts to, to get the right things done at the right times. Okay. Um, you know, there's pretty big differences between what person A and person B can pay the exact same person to do the exact same job. Okay. So your contacts for contractors, etc. Exactly. Okay. What sort of uh, timeline are builds taking these days in Edmonton for, for the type of infill projects that you're involved with? I'd say probably about seven to, to nine months. Okay. You know, on average, a lot of it depends on how long you have to wait for the city to, you know, come through with inspections and, right. you know, permitting all that sort of fun stuff. Okay. And what sort of hurdles are you seeing uh, in terms of getting approvals and, and the projects completed these uh, days? It depends on the neighborhoods, but some some neighborhoods put up a bit more of a, a fight against infill than, than others. Mm-hmm. But that being said, as long as you're doing a quality project in a neighborhood everybody tends to, to be happy with you at the end of the day. Right. Now, there's the, this is actually a pretty big area of controversy in some neighborhoods where, you know, you, we're seeing stories in the paper where they're, they're basically getting the residents of a neighborhood together and saying, hey, no one's going, we're, we're all in agreement, we're going to sign this document that says no one's turning their house into a subdivided property in the future, and we're not doing infill, etc. What's your take on that? Um. I think a lot of people get up in arms. They they want to keep the character of their communities, and you know that's great. But a lot of times, when you start using the word character when you're describing a property, it tends to mean run down at a lot of points as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's great if an old property can be maintained and keep the the character of the neighborhood that way. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the infill projects are, are houses that are beyond repair. A lot of them have a lot of water damage. You know, through the the basements, the foundations are crumbling and falling apart you know to to be able to get that house back up to a livable standard you'd be spending more money than the house would end up being worth at the end of the day right so you know the that's the difficult part for developers right they they're 
the houses that they can afford to buy at lot, lot value, they're buying at lot value because there's no value to the home. Right. The, the home is more of a, a negative because it's still going to cost to tear it down. Right. So, you know, I understand why people want to keep the, the character of their neighborhoods, but maybe that's because their homes are still in good condition, nice and livable, and they don't want to see something shiny and new down the block. But at the end of the day, it ends up raising their property values. And a lot of people don't want to be going through construction zone. And, you know, fair enough, nobody wants to be living in construction zone. But at some point, you know, the, the lifespan of a house is going to come to an end. Right. So it's a lot of delaying the inevitable. I think at the end of the day, everybody's happy when they, they do see the nice house on, on their block. Right. Sure, it might not be a wartime bungalow that's rebuilt. Right, yeah. But, you know, I, I think everybody has to understand that everybody's in this together and people aren't just going to build a house that isn't going to be worth as much money that they, they put into it. So everybody has to kind of figure out the best ways to make the, the projects worthwhile. And, you know, if it ends up being a bigger two-story in a neighborhood with older bungalows, not everybody might appreciate it. But at the end of the day, it's either that or it's going to be a vacant lot. I think a lot of people, uh, you know, or I guess my interpretation is those people who have issues, quite often it's, you know, they live in the smaller, older bungalows, and suddenly you get much larger two-story homes. So as an example, if you were to drive around, say, Strathern or parts of Bonnie Dune, you're driving down a street and suddenly there's, you know, one or two or three houses that seem out of proportion with the rest of the street. I mean, is that a fair comment that that's probably what is getting, you know, the, the existing residents up in arms? Yeah, that could be. But again, it's that tricky situation of, do you keep that old bungalow that isn't livable anymore mm-hmm. and just let the, the neighborhood be run down in that fact? Or do you, you know, do that, that house that sticks out a little bit? Right. Yeah. So it's, it's a, a fine line. There's, right. It's a bit of a, a tricky dance to keep everybody happy. And at the end of the day, you can do 10 different things and... Ten different people are going to have ten different opinions on it. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, I'm sure some of it is not in my backyard, right? There's also, though, been criticism of, uh, say, contractors who are kind of disrespectful of the neighbors or have caused damage to neighboring houses. Uh, have you ever heard stuff like that? Yeah, and that's unfortunate, you know, but it, people dealing with people, it's it's never going to go smooth, right? It's, uh, it'd be, be different if it was two two systems that, you know, operated smoothly, but everybody's got a different opinion and, a, you know, tempers can flare up at uh, different points for different reasons. And, you know, it'd be nice if everybody was calm, cool, and collected, but that's not always the, the way it works, especially when, you know, there's somebody who feels their, their home is being invaded by contractors or developer that feels that, you know, their livelihood's being attacked by you know, a neighbor that doesn't like the, the color of their siding and wants to put a delay on their project and they're they're carrying all the costs in the meantime, right? Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to be in, in business not to make money or to lose money. Right, of course. E- even worse. But, you know, so that that's where the, you know, the fine line comes in. It's everybody's got to get along and, you know, if everybody can work together, a lot of the developers are more than happy to t- take input from the neighbors on what they think would look good because, you know, at the end of the day, they want it to look at themselves. Right. Yeah. I mean, obviously you can't sell it if it doesn't look good or if, if it's not appealing to the market, right? Yeah, exactly. But, you know, so that's where it, it gets interesting, right? When you, you put the people out there and everybody's got their different take. I know our last project, we uh, we had to tear down an old decrepit fence 
it was kind of a combination of chain link and wrought iron and you know anything else that the the people had had laying around that they put up laying against the fence you know sheets of plywood it, you know if you breathed on it it would probably fall over <laughs> right. and we you know the neighbor had asked if we'd be putting up a new fence when we did our project and and we said yeah no problem you know if you want us to put up a new fence well we'd be more than happy to and so we we tore down the house and told the guys, you know what, pull the fence out and we'll put up a new fence right away. And the neighbor came out screaming, you know, no problem, you know, big problem. What'd you do to my fence? And we said, well, we, we have to take down the old fence before we can put in the new fence. <laughs> right. You know, and we've got somebody coming tomorrow to do that. And, you know, didn't want to have any of it. You know, we tried to stay calm and say, you know, like, don't worry, you know, we're putting up your fence tomorrow. You're going to have that new fence that you were asking for. Mm-hmm. So e- even when you do things for people that, they've asked for and you, you're trying to, to make them happy mm-hmm. at the end of the day you're dealing with people and some people are just happier to be unhappy at times yeah was that neighbor having to pay any of the cost towards the fence no we we paid for the whole fence and well what's the problem so you got a brand new <laughs> fence and you know I'm, I'm sure looking back he's probably thinking to himself I don't know why I was so upset but you know, he went half a day without a fence. I think the the end of the day, he's sitting with a, a much better fence than he than he had. Yeah. Now, I, my dad owns a rental property where uh, a duplex went in beside his house, and when they were tearing down the existing uh, older home, they had accidentally knocked down a brand new fence that my dad had built. <laughs> Fortunately, you know, the the builders were pretty reasonable and repaired it, and you know life went on but you can see where people you know lose their temper temper and get upset about stuff like that oh yeah but you know and that happens in brand new neighborhoods as well you know my my fence got hit with the the excavator when they were digging my my neighbor's foundation and so i've got a bit of a leaning fence and you know they they came to fix it but it wasn't exactly the greatest fixed job so i just said don't don't worry about it i'll you know i'll, I'll get it fixed once the the neighbor's house was completed mm-hmm. but it happens in new neighborhoods, and you know what? When you start building in an old neighborhood, there's things that can go wrong as well, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everybody tries their best to make it all work smooth, but you know, the, it's inevitable that there's always going to be some sort of issue. Yeah. What's the most frustrating day you've had or experience you've had on the development side of things? Uh, you know what? Try not to let things bother me too much. Sometimes I'd, I'd say probably just the delays, but at the same time, the, the delays are worthwhile. Um, waiting on the city for permits and a lot of the bureaucracy and checks in the box. But, you know, a lot of people, not a lot of people, a few people ruin things for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So I think the delays are, are needed when it comes to the city, making sure that, you know, everything checks out. Can you give me an example of what you mean by a few people ruin things for? Well, a lot of uh, times with getting permits. Some people shouldn't be in the building industry. Mm-hmm. So y- you can... If you walk through some houses, you can you can spot problems, especially when you're you're selling real estate. You're always looking for all the issues in a house as you walk through. So a lot of times in newer neighborhoods, you're seeing a lot of houses that, you know, do have issues. So if you're waiting on the city to come do inspections on your place, you know sometimes they're delayed because they're dealing with the the places that do have the issues. Mm-hmm. If there wasn't all those inspections going on, just think of the the issues that would be in some of these projects. Mm-hmm. Have you seen labor costs come down? So framing crews and other, you know, contractors' prices coming down? A little bit. Um, nothing too crazy. Everybody still has to, to afford to, to eat at the end of the day. They, they can't cut their costs so much that, 
you know, they're, they're doing the work for, for nothing. But, you know, I, I see a bit more of a willingness to, to work on price from, from some contractors. Right. Okay. Cool. What's the best real estate advice you ever received? Well, it doesn't necessarily totally tie to, to real estate, but more of business in, in general. Is a quote I heard. Um, a good entrepreneur makes life a game worth living for everybody around them. So essentially, sweeten the pot for everybody involved, and everybody wants to keep doing business with you and add some value to other people's lives. Right. So create win-win situations, basically. Exactly. Okay. So when you're dealing with clients, so let's say, I guess it's regardless of whether it's a buyer or a seller, but when you're dealing with clients, how do you create those sorts of situations? Well, I don't want uh, clients just to buy any house to buy any house. I'd rather talk somebody out of buying a house than talk them into to buying a house. Okay. So at the end of the day, I tell people if you're going to buy a house, you know you're getting it at a good price if you can turn around tomorrow and sell it for that same price. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then on the building side of things or the development side of things, is there any sort of takeaways that you've learned along the way from that? The biggest thing is probably pay attention. Try and know a little bit about everybody's jobs Mm -hmm. so you can spot the issues before they they arise. And if they do arise, spot them sooner rather than later because it's, it's easier to fix things now as opposed to a week from now when somebody else has come and done another job in behind them. Mm-hmm. Right. What sort of neighborhoods do you see or do you think are the quote-unquote hot neighborhoods or the more desirable neighborhoods for infill right now? I'd say anywhere kind of along the, the White Avenue corridor and then over towards West Mount, Inglewood. You know, those neighborhoods you see a lot of infill going on right now. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's really anywhere. There's the cycle in the neighborhoods where... You know, every, it's a brand new neighborhood at one point, and then it, you know, gets older. You know, people start doing nice renovations on a slightly older home, and then those renovations happen and happen. And over time, houses end up getting worn out. And then once they get start getting back to lot value, just before then, it's always a less desirable neighborhood because it's all these decrepit houses. And then the, the infill cycle kicks it back in, and, right. you know, the land values start to go back up. Okay, so if you're 